We've been taking a look at seven things that we hope to be increasingly true about us as a church over time. We call these the embodied values of Redemption Hill Church. And so, Robert Green for the past four weeks has already taken us through what it means and looks like for us to be a church that is, number one, worshiping Jesus above all else. Number two, treasuring the riches of the gospel. Number three, surrendering to the Word of God. And number four, delighting in the wisdom of God's process. Today is number five, and today we will be talking about what it means and looks like for us as a church to live with the urgency of eternity. What does it mean and look like for us to be a church living with the urgency of eternity? Luke chapter 12, verse 13, to set the scene, there were thousands of people here in the crowd and, and someone in the crowd interrupted Jesus' teaching uh, to suggest that he ought to make the church about settling his domestic dispute. So verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. Saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for something that only You can do now. I, I just ask over the next few minutes that you would, you would make an eternal impact in our hearts. Show us what it means to live with the urgency of eternity and why we need to do it. And then most importantly, Lord, empower us. Give us what we need to make that a reality. We ask all these things in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, well, what would you do if God showed up and gave you advance notice that today was the day that you would die? It's exactly what happened to the rich fool in this parable, isn't it? What would you do? That would cause you to live with a new sense of urgency, wouldn't it? Now, I wonder how this guy responded to what God said to him. We're not told, are we? We're not told. I'm really interested in what that looks like. In fact, if the producers of the the TV series 24 are listening, then I'd love to see that worked into a series of 24. But in any case, advance notice or not, whether you know what 24 is or not, advance notice or not, um, you and I will die one day. You and I will die one day. In fact, this very day, 
across the world, 150,000 people approximately will pass from this life into eternity. They will realize by the end of today that this very night, their soul was required of them. If you could see the world all at once the way God does, you would watch 150,000 people pass from this life into eternity today. And you could be one of them. You and I need to live with the urgency of eternity. And the reason we need to do that, I'm going to give you two reasons today. With the rest of our time, I want to talk about two reasons why we need to live with the, the urgency of eternity. And hopefully, if we get to it, two results of doing so. Two reasons are this, and then we'll, we'll take them one at a time. Number one, you and I need to live with the urgency of eternity because eternity is real. I want to talk about the realness of eternity. And number two, the nearness of eternity. Let's start by talking about the realness of eternity. Um, I, I don't know anybody, maybe you do, I don't know anybody, at least any sane person, who does not believe in death. Anybody here? I mean, the, the statistics are staggering. Barring, barring some miracle of the return of the Lord, uh, 10 of 10 of us will die. Nobody seems to disagree with that. Are you all with me? However, I have found many people, I talk with them quite often on college campuses. I think most of them, most of them are around 18 to 35 years old. But I know many people who do not believe that we will continue to live or exist after death. Lots of, in fact, let me read this. I, I pulled this up. This is very representative of what I hear on college campuses all the time. This is the opinion of one particular atheist. All hypotheses about life after death seem to involve some form of religious superstition which can never be proven. See, I believe in naturalism and materialism, which say, at the very least, that the conscious self is established by the structures and processes of the brain. When these structures are destroyed and the processes cease, the conscious self ceases to exist as well. See, it's just like a TV. A TV has a picture which exists as long as the TV is functioning. In the same way, the human being has a conscious self which exists as long as the brain and other necessary systems are functioning. That's one view. There are others. Like the one my friend Milt has. I met this guy named Milt last year in May. I don't remember the exact date, but it was a Wednesday. For those of you who like to do research, you can find out the exact day. And I believe it was the second Wednesday of May 2008. I walked into the Panera Bread just west of the intersection of Broad and Gaskins in the West End. And I may be pointing in the wrong direction, but don't let that bother you. I walked in at exactly 10 o'clock a.m. And I remember that because I was on time exactly on time for that appointment, which is a very rare occurrence. And so I walked in, and I saw Milt sitting there, and I didn't know him, he didn't know me, but we knew, you know how this works? We knew when we saw each other that we were there to meet each other, like that. So Milt's probably about 60 or so years old, and we got a bite to eat. He was kind enough to, to actually pay for my meal. And we sat down, and as we sat down, before we started to talk about the, the ministry opportunity that had connected us, he asked me about my family, and so I proceeded to tell him about my wife, Heather, and our two children. At that time, my oldest, Kira, was 15 months old, and Brianna, whose gender we did not know yet, was on the way. 
And, and I believe that I had two children at that point, even though one of them was yet unborn. I'll let you form your own conclusions from, about what I believe when, when I say things like that. However, however, Milt proceeded to then tell me about his family. And he said, we have three children. Two of them are still living. He spoke about his three children in the present tense. He said, we have three children. Two of them are still living. Milt began to tell me the story of how he lost a daughter in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. It was seven years removed from that occurrence. And as he began to tell me the story, he said, did you know that there were exactly 999 hospitals in and around the city of New York receiving victims from that day? He said, I know because I made a list and called every single one of them. Searching for a Jane Doe whose name was Alicia. He said, I couldn't do it on my own. The church that he went to actually had to carry him and his wife. He said, they were the body of Christ, the hands and the feet of Christ to me at that moment. And he just sat down with his wife and they cried and they prayed and they ate the food that their church members brought over and everybody else came over. About 50 people were lined up in his house dividing up the list of 999 hospitals and calling each one at least two to three times. At the end of about two and a half to three weeks of this, uh, one who was selected by the group came to Milt and said, Milt, um, we've done everything we can. We've done everything we can. And at that moment, Milt, the reality of what had happened to his daughter fell upon him uh, in a whole new way. He had kind of known in his heart for some time, but, but it was even more real now. And uh, he embraced that brother and they began to cry. Milt wept bitterly. And he began to cry again as he told me the story that Wednesday morning in Panera Bread. And I looked over at him, not yet crying myself. And then he looked up at me with his glasses still on. And I could see the tears behind his glasses. And he said, he said words I'll never forget. We have the hope of the resurrection. I have never been struck more pointedly by what it looks like to believe in the realness of eternity in a personal conversation with anyone than I was at that moment. I will never forget Milt as long as I live, and I will never forget that moment. Milt believes in the realness of eternity. This atheist may not. Milt does. But might I suggest to you that it's really neither here nor there what Milt believes or what this atheist believes. The most important case I can make to you about the realness of eternity is that Jesus believes in it. Did you know that? Jesus believes in the reality of eternity or the realness of eternity. And just to, just to show you some of it, I'll let you read Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, on your own. I think it might start in verse 19. You can read that on your own when you go home. But look really quickly at what Matthew seems to remember. From what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 Jesus says if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell Matthew chapter 23 verse 33 speaking to the self-righteous 
hypocrites, religious leaders of His day, the Pharisees, Jesus said this, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? By the way, I'll say this before I read the next one. If this is your first time here, we don't always scream at people about hell. If this is your first time here, we don't always scream about hell. And I'm going to try not to scream because I think these words really carry their own force, don't they? But stick with us here because what I'm saying is actually true. And Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. In fact, of the 12 times this word hell the Greek word geana that's translated into hell here, of the 12 times it's used in the Scripture, 11 of them are from the mouth of Jesus Himself. Only Peter dared to use it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, speaking about what God chose to do with the angels who sinned. But hell is very real. Eternity is very real. One more from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 to 46. Just in case you were tempted to, to let yourself believe what seems to be so popular in many circles and in many churches or from the mouths of many even so-called pastors today about hell and how it's not so bad and either it's not real or, you know, when you get there, you just cease to exist once you arrive. Well, let's read what Jesus seems to think about hell. He says to some who did not believe in Him, depart from Me, which is interesting because everyone who thinks that they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus right now, and the Bible apparently is trying to get in. See, there's something about the deception of this life that is removed with death, and they're all trying to get in. They don't want to come to your church now, or your Bible study now. They don't want to hear your gospel now, but oh, they want it then. If you're listening to me, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, and you have at some time in the past given the the, the hand or the stiff arm to those who try to share the good news of Jesus with you, reconsider today. You will reconsider soon. Do it now while you still have a chance to benefit from that desire. One more from Jesus. Depart from me, you cursed, into the... Everybody read those next, next two words. So it's in your Bible too, and it's up on the screen. Eternal fire prepared. This thing has been prepared. We don't like to talk about God preparing eternal fire. But that's what the Bible talks about. That's what Jesus believes. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It it really wasn't prepared for any of us. Very important. God did not prepare it for us. He did not prepare hell for any one of you in here today. And so I beg you, don't go. Don't go. Which you will if you don't repent. Okay? Which you will if you don't repent. God is absolutely determined to look Jesus in the eye and say, Son, if you went through that, you died on the cross to make it possible for people to be forgiven on these grounds, I will not let anyone come through any other way. I will, God will not do that to Jesus. He will not make an exception for you that forces him to neglect justice concerning his son. He won't do it. As special as you are, you're not that special. Listen to what I'm saying and repent. It's your only chance. These will go away into, everybody read the next two words. Eternal punishment. That eternal fire 
is eternal punishment, you will continue to exist somewhere in absolute joy with God or in absolute torment and punishment in hell. This will happen. And every single day, 150,000 people discover how real that is. This is not a game. And as scary as that is, if you're, if you're really listening with your soul, Jesus puts the good news right behind it. But the righteous into eternal life. See, this thing wasn't prepared for you or for me. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. The righteous go into eternal life. Now, if I were to ask people, which one would you like to sign up for? Let's do, Chris DeRocco, let's do one of these online surveys. Would you like eternal punishment or eternal life? Not too many people would choose the former, right? Not on a survey, but many people choose the former with the way they live their life. We don't need to do that. Uh, eternity is real. If you are one of those people, once again, who, who happens to say, I, I don't believe in things like eternity or in things like hell, let's at least be very clear about what you are actually saying. You are saying, I disagree with Jesus, not Raymond, not Robert, not Chris, not Heather, not Redemption Hill Church. You're saying, I disagree with Jesus, and I believe that he's wrong. And I'm right. And you look at me sometimes and say, I'm arrogant for telling you that you need to repent. Yet you're not arrogant for believing that you are right when you disagree with the Son of God. Maybe arrogance is a human thing and not a religious thing. Maybe arrogance is on both sides of the coin. Forgive me for my arrogance if, 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 if it's there. I know it's there at times, but you still need to repent. I need to repent. You need to repent. We all need to repent. Even you need to repent. If you don't, it will cost you your very soul. So eternity is real. Jesus is right. And if we're going to live with the urgency of eternity, as we are endeavoring to do as a church, we're going to have to believe at the very least in the realness of eternity, but, but it can't stop there. We also have to believe, number two, in the nearness of eternity. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. We can see that in our story, can't we? Do we have that slide again in Luke chapter 12? Verse 20, Jesus says that God looks at this rich man and says, You idiot, fool, Moria in the Greek. Literally, you moron, without morals. Literally, you, you, you fool. This night, you're going to do what for many years? This night, your soul is required of you. Eternity is often much nearer for us than we think. And what God says to this rich man here is, 
the fact that at some point in the very near future, whether it's 24 hours or 50 years, the fact that at some point in the near future, your soul will be required of you should have made an impact on the way you lived and handled and allocated your resources today. Christian, the fact that at some point in the near future, you will be in your class of 150,000 passing from this life into eternity. You ready to graduate? That fact, God says, should have direct bearing upon how we live and allocate our resources today. Our time. Our money. Our talents and abilities. If our plan is to store up enough of this while our income is increased, and then to... I think there are some people... Stop me if I'm wrong here, but I think there are some people whose plan is to save up enough while they have an abundance and to later in life just relax, eat, drink, play golf, fish, be merry. Retirement, anybody ever heard of that? You know where you didn't hear of that? You did not hear of that from reading your Bible. You did not. I promise you, you did not. Am I saying that you always have to be working some job where you have an income? I'm not saying anything of the sort. I'm just saying that if your plan is to consume everything that God has put into your hand as a blessing on yourself and your own leisure, you are a fool. And I don't say that from my own heart. I say that from God's. You are an absolute fool and you're wasting your life. Would you like to do something else? With your life? few years that you have left or the many years that you have left? Well, good. We can talk about that. It, it, what, one of the first things you're going to have to do is believe in the realness of eternity and the nearness of eternity because you can actually have something be very real to you, very even important to you, but yet not be urgent to you. So to live with the urgency of eternity is going to require not only a belief in something's realness, but its nearness. I'll give you an example. Heather and I, just like most of you, pay bills every single month. Anybody in here pay bills? I love to know that I'm not alone. We pay bills every single month, and one of those bills is our credit card bill. Now, we use it for lots of things, like gas, groceries, and whatever, and pay it off at the end of the month. Every single month, at about the fourth of the month, I get a letter in the mail from Bank of America telling me how much they have put up for me and how much I now owe them. When I open that envelope, I look at the amount. It's the first thing I look at. And sometimes I'm shocked and sometimes I'm not. If I am shocked, it's because of something I bought and forgot about. <laughs> uh, um, but when I look at that amount, that is a very real amount to me. I feel responsible to pay that. It's very real. Nothing in me says, this is not a real amount or a real obligation that I have to meet. When I look at it again, it's also very important to me to pay that bill for at least three reasons. Number one, I, I don't want a late fee. And I know the government has recently done some things to crack down on some of these credit card companies, praise the Lord. 
But number one, I don't want any late fees. Number two, I don't want to, to turn my back on what I have promised. I promised to pay Bank of America that money when I signed my name to that little receipt. Did you all know that? You ever read the receipt? So I don't want to go back on my word, and I can't even remember the third reason. Oh, I don't want to ruin my credit, or Heather's for that matter, right? So, so for at least three reasons, this is not only real but important to me. Yet, when I get that letter on the fourth of the month, I, I read it. It's real. It's important. And I put it down on my desk, and I don't pick it back up until at least the 17th of the month because it's due on the 21st. And only then does it become urgent to me. Why? Because of its nearness. You and I stand no chance of living with the urgency of eternity if all it is is real to us. Got to feel near. Now, how does that happen? How do you make eternity feel near to you? Do you try to convince yourself, like the man in our story here, that you have less than 24 hours to live? You won't get very far. You, you will squeeze maybe a little drop of urgency out of that for a moment. So what else can you do? Any suggestions? What if the key, you could ask for it. I like that one. I like that one. What if the key to feeling and believing in the realness and the nearness, especially the nearness of eternity, is not found so much in what we do or in even focusing upon something about ourselves? What if being sober-minded about my own mortality and the fact that one day my soul will be required of me is still not enough to make eternity feel near, especially if I'm 32 years old and I, I'm relatively healthy and borrowing, or I'm trying to say barring, not borrowing, but I have trouble with that. And I need a porky pig moment here. Bidi, bidi, bidi. And unless... Unless something that I don't expect happens, there you go, I will more than likely live at least another 32 years. That is a distinct possibility. I could live less than 24 hours. I could live another 32, maybe even more years on this earth. It is very hard for me to convince myself that I only have 24 hours left to live and therefore I should be urgent. I need something else to make me feel the urgency of eternity. And so do you. Here's what I've discovered in my few years. Eternity begins to feel like an urgent matter to you. Not so much when you convince yourself that you only have 24 hours or some exact time like three years left to live. But when your remaining time on earth begins to feel short. Now, now, there are many ways for that to happen for you. That is what must happen here. I'll tell you how God did that for us. Rather than trying to get you to, to abandon yourself to your own wit to figure out how to make it happen for you, here's what God did. God sent a man into this earth who lived with the urgency of eternity.
Jesus, as we sang in the song, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Jesus left the comfort of heaven and came to this earth with the urgency of eternity in his heart and in his eyes, with compassion for sinners like me. And he went to the cross with this eternity. This urgency in his heart. He went to the cross and paid the penalty that was due to me for the life that I had lived. God sent his son into the world, John 3.16, because he loved us. He loved us in this way. He sent his son into the world that to whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Verses 17 and 18 are hardly ever quoted, but they're so important. Jesus says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. I have spoken to you this morning about hell and eternal judgment and punishment. But I have not come this morning to condemn anybody. We don't do that here. Jesus did not do that. The Bible says in John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through Him the world might be Saved. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, I just quoted that to you without reading my Bible. Here's what I'll say to you go to John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 and 18. On your own time. And look it up. It's in your Bible too. God sent His Son into the world with the urgency of eternity in His heart and in His eyes. That urgency took Him to the cross for us. And the key to your days all of a sudden feeling short to you is to receive into your very soul the eternal life that Jesus possesses. When the eternal life of Christ is infused into your little life, everything else seems short. 24 hours, 30 years, 80 years. Lauren, you might have 80 more years. Madeline, maybe 80 years. If you receive the eternal life of Jesus into your soul, those 80 years will seem short. You know what you're going to start doing? You're going to start saying things like this. That Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ on the inside of you is going to say, where's the world? Who has not yet believed? Lord, who has believed our message, Isaiah says? And you're going to get a response to that question. The Lord is going to say, not enough. The word is going out, but not enough people have heard. 1.6 billion people on the face of this planet still have not heard and understood the name of Jesus Christ. There is no joy in their heart because of the Son of God and what He has done for them. We sit on the abundance of what God has provided us and we say, soul, relax. You're going to heaven. Eat, drink, be merry. The world is perishing. But hey, it's like that old game <clears throat> my cousins used to play with me. Concentrate, concentrate. 
Concentrate on what I'm saying. Babes are dying. People are crying. But still, relax. Christian, relax. I wasn't a Christian growing up, so maybe you guys didn't play that game. But we did, and I got an illustration out of it, so good enough. God can redeem anything. He often does. Um, we, we don't have to just relax as people perish all around us. We can actually, with an urgency of eternity, allow God to speak to our hearts. And we can say, dear God, there are so many peoples, so many whole people groups out there who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you put just one of them on my heart? Lord, would you put just one of them on the, on the hearts of our small group here at Redemption Hill? Lord, just put a few on the hearts of this church. Lord, can you help us to begin praying for every church in Richmond? Maybe every church in Richmond would, would begin to pray and say, God, where, where, are, where is the unreached part of the world? Maybe, maybe we can begin to speak to our friends in other churches and say, hey, hey, let's begin to pray for some of these unreached people groups. I won't be able to make it there, but I know at Commonwealth Chapel this Tuesday night, they are doing just that. Some of you may be able to make it and to, to pray for the nations there this Tuesday night. Um, I'm sorry I won't be able to join you that Tuesday night. We're doing something else that night. But, but uh, let there be at least one or two representatives from Redemption Hill there. And, and when you get there, go see Sharon Lewis and tell her, you go to Redemption Hill Church, you heard about this, you just want to be a part of the body of Christ tonight. Um, we need to cry out to God for the salvation of people. This is not the time to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And to sit on, on our salvation. This is the time to share that. We need to be moved with the urgency of eternity because of its realness and its nearness. Those are two reasons to live with the urgency of eternity. And there are at least two results of doing so. Two very practical results of doing so. And I won't spend too much time on this one. But look again at Luke chapter 12. If you've got your Bible still open. This time down in verse 32. And I'm wrapping up pretty quickly, Pastor Robert. So this... this uh, I may have to just tell you some, some stories or can't tell jokes after you've talked about hell. Serious stories, you know. Luke chapter 12, verse 32 to 34. After now going through the practical implications of what a true conviction about the realness and the nearness of eternity, which produces in us an urgency with regard to eternity, after going through what that really means and looks like in everyday life, Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How sad it would be. How sad would it be if our treasure is in our 401k account? Aren't the moths of inflation and stock market crashes eating away at those things at this very moment? Have we not yet learned those things are no more stable than these curtains. How many of you were here half an hour ago? 
I think God just wants to give us a picture of, hey, look, a lot of the things you and I trust in, it'll be gone. Don't let your heart and your life go with it. Let your heart become attached to a treasure that is somewhere safe, that is kept by the Son of God, that is the Son of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, you and I have a precious treasure now, an inheritance kept in heaven for us that can neither spoil nor fade nor perish. We have been given birth, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, to a new and living hope through, anybody know? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Watch this. I'm going I'm to act at least that, like I'm in 1 Peter. Now, I've got time, so I'll find it. Let me not leave you guys out back here. Take a break. 1 Peter chapter 1. Watch this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, Chris DeRocco is about to get happy. Watch this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If we are, if we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what, what is our living hope? Because the living hope is ours through the resurrection. What's the living hope? Jesus. Folks, Jesus is the hope. I'm not going to heaven to get gold and pearls and, and the stuff that the Holy Spirit on the inside of me has caused me to look at with sober judgment now and say, ah, it's not worth that much anyway. I'm not going there for those riches. I'm not going there for the, the Muslim virgins and, and, and that sort of, I'm going for Jesus. He's my hope. He's all my treasure. That's what we've been talking about. I've been born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and he's alive and he's my hope and I'm going to be with him. And there's an urgency of eternity in my heart most of the time, some of the time, not all of the time. But that urgency is there for two reasons. I, I don't want to go to hell. And I want to be with Jesus. It, I've heard people say, you shouldn't scare people with, with talk about hell. Yes, you should. We're scared of all kinds of things, right? I mean, we're scared of people's opinions. We're, we're scared of walking down a dark street at night. You, you need to be scared about hell. Anything else that scares you is minuscule. Why wouldn't you be scared of hell? I mean, do you have a brain? What in the world else are you going to be scared about? Let hell scare you to your core. But it won't be enough to scare you into heaven. I can't scare anybody into heaven. You've got to love Jesus. And I can't make that happen to you. But I can stand up here every week or listen to Robert or Chris or someone else stand up here every week and tell you about the one who can, who has caused me and many of us to be born again. Cannot enter the kingdom of God 
unless you're born again. Listen to me. I, I will say this. There is a limited time offer on the table. God is right now, because of what Jesus has done for us, dying for our sins on the cross, God is right now accepting sinners into heaven and into his family. He is accepting people at the foot of the cross and saying, every time I look at my son on this cross and remember what he did, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it is, I will forgive you. That offer is on the table for you today. I don't know if it will be there tomorrow. This is a limited time offer, and it expires on a different day for each one of us. 150,000 people today. You, tomorrow. Whether that tomorrow is tomorrow or 50 years from now. How have you responded to the message of Jesus' death on the cross for your sin in your place? The offer is still good. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the only thing that will put an urgency of eternity into your hearts. Believing in its realness, its nearness. And when that happens, look at chapter 12 one last time, verse 32 to 34. Jesus says, here's practically two results of living with the urgency of eternity. And this is my prayer for us as a church. That we would first of all respond with urgency to the gospel story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what it means practically for each one of us, but then also that we would be filled with courage when we face the challenges of life and even the threat of death for taking a stand for Jesus Christ. Fear not, little flock. The most, I love what Matt Bristol said the other day in our, in our community group. The most numerous command in the Gospels, fear not. In the Bible, fear not. Fear not. There's much to be afraid of in this life, but God comes and says, fear not. Why? For I am with you. Jesus has died for you. Fear not. Don't worry about losing stuff. Why? Because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You can lose anything in this life, including your life, because it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Risk it all. Risk it all. So you have needs. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Yes, you have needs. So do other people. Take a risk. Why? Because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's made up his mind. We have not, but he has. He's made up his mind. He said, I'm going to give you the kingdom. I'll prove it by sending my son to the cross. Trade in some of your abundance to help meet the needs of others. You can do it. The Holy Spirit will make it a reality in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that you will take these few moments and these few words that we have spoken to produce an urgency regarding eternity in every single one of our hearts. We ask that you will remind us of the nearness and the realness of eternity and work these things into our hearts as we trust Jesus every single day of our lives, so that we might be very courageous, very generous. Give us the courage and the generosity that comes from the urgency of eternity. We ask all these things in your great name. Amen.